comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 17, and it's just verse 24 that I want to read. Jesus is praying. We'll talk more about that in just a moment. And Jesus says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory, that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. And may the Lord bless our reading from his word to our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you will bless our consideration of this portion of your word this afternoon. We have fed upon your truth this morning. We ask you, Lord, to feed us now out of it this afternoon. We are dependent upon you, Lord, to make your word live in our hearts. And so, Father, we come asking for Christ's sake that you would grant us that blessing according to the promise of your word. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this morning, we saw these words in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2. Um, so we're going back to 1 John. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears... We shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. Now these words, when made effectual in our hearts by the Holy Spirit, and when they're received by faith, and they are believed as the word of God, produce in the heart of the believer, I think, a mysterious expectation along with a firm conviction. The mysterious expectation is, what does this mean when we see him as he is, we will be like him? That's the promise. We're sure it's going to happen. But what does it mean? And as is so often the case with John, this statement in 1 John reflects upon something Jesus said and that John recorded in his gospel. And so it brings us back to John chapter 17, where we read from just a moment ago, the high priestly prayer of the Lord Jesus. And if you turn there, or you look at it in your notes, you'll see that Jesus is the one who's praying. He's the one who is engaged in prayer to his Father. This prayer is one of the events that transpires between the meal in the upper room when Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper and his betrayal in the garden and everything that follows that, which all ends, of course, with his torture and his mockery and his crucifixion. So this prayer that he's offering comes in between those events. Um, They're up in the upper room. Now they're getting ready to leave the upper room. While they're doing that, Jesus pauses, seems perhaps even almost before they leave the room, and he offers this prayer. And John introduces these events by saying this, and it's all the way back in the Gospel of John, chapter 13 and verse 1. And there we read, John says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, 
Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. What a beautiful thing that that, that is, to know that, to, to read that from John. Having loved his own, he loved them to the end. And after this, the events of the next few chapters unfold, beginning with Jesus washing his disciples' feet. That's in chapter 13. And it brings us up to chapter 17, when Jesus begins this, this prayer. And it's just before he and the disciples leave Jerusalem, cross over the brook Kidron, and enter into the Garden of Gethsemane. Matthew Henry says that Jesus made many solemn prayers during his sojourn or his days spent here on the earth, but none is more fully recorded than this one. And it begins with what he calls an outward expression of fervent zeal. And it begins by saying that he lifted his eyes towards heaven. And that was the outward expression of fervent zeal. He's calling on his father, and he lifts his eyes in that direction. Martin Luther says of this prayer, Jesus opens here the depths of his heart, both in reference to us and to his father, and he pours them all out. It sounds so honest, so simple. It is so deep, so rich, so wide. No one can fathom it. And it's during this great prayer that we find Jesus saying what we read a moment ago. So I want to look at it again in John chapter 17, verse 24. While Jesus has his eyes lifted up to his Father, while he's offering this prayer, which is part of the expression of his love, knowing that he's come to the end and that the end is right before him, He says this, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Now notice first that your hope in seeing the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ when he appears is initially the result of Christ's desire for you. He says, this is my desire. Father, my desire is that those that I call as, my, as your children, that they would be with me, that they might see my glory. Now, that's his desire. But you know something interesting, children? There's this great thing about God's desire. And in Christ being God, his desire. Desire in in the Lord is an expression of his will. And it's an expression of his will because he's God. So he is able to do or exercise everything he desires. And you and I can't do that. Um, I'd like to be able to fly. I have a desire to fly. But as much as I'd like to be able to fly... I can't do that, can I? No, I can't. No. There's no way I'm getting off the ground. Right. So you can't, we can't do that. We can't do anything we desire. But when Jesus says that this is his desire, behind that is all the authority and all the power of God himself. 
And so the desire is really a reality. It's something that's going to come to pass because of who he is. In Daniel chapter 4 and verse 35, it says this, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he that is God does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, What have you done? Nobody can do that because he can do whatever he desires to do. And so the very fact that this is a desire of the Savior makes it clear that this is a desire that will be fulfilled. That you and I are going to be there with him and we are going to behold his glory. He wants you, as one of those that the Father has given to him, to be with him where he is so that you can look on, take in this glory. Now, I want to say that again. He wants you, as one of the ones that the Father has given to him, he wants you to be there with him so that you can see his glory. Now, I know it's early afternoon, and that siesta time is quickly approaching but if you know this to be true that this is Jesus Christ's desire for you that you will be where he is so that you can look on his glory it ought to at least raise the hairs on the back of your neck a little bit think about that I mean Jesus is looking upon me he loves me to that extent that his desire is that I might be with him where he is so that I can look on and behold and see the glory of who he is. Jesus said earlier, and this is John chapter 6 and verse 37, he says, All the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. And he promises then later these words, and it's good to put these words with 1 John chapter 3 verse 2, And with John chapter 17, verse 24. Because Jesus says in John 14, 1 through 3, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will what? Take you to myself, that where I am you may be also. To what purpose? To behold my glory. Father, Father, I desire, my heart's desire is that you would bring them that you've called, that you've given to me, to be where I am so that they can behold my glory. So if you're one of his, he's coming again to get you, to get hold of you, so that where he is, you may be also. So that you can look on this glory. And when you do, you'll be like him, because you will see him as he is in his glory. Now what sort of sight do we get of him? Well, not like Moses saw the Lord, shielded. Undoubtedly, Moses had 
a solemn view of the Lord. We know it was because it drove him to worship. He bowed his head and dropped to the ground and worshiped to the Lord. You read about that in Exodus 33 and 34. In Exodus 33, beginning in verse 18, Moses says to the Lord, Please show me your glory. Let me see your glory. And the Lord says to him, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. But, he said, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. And the Lord said, behold, there's a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in the cleft of the rock and will cover you with my hand until I've passed by. So then we, we come down to, to, to Exodus 34, verses 5 through 8. We don't want to make any mistake here. Even though this view of Moses was shielded, it was glorious. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord with him in the cleft of the rock, with the Lord's hand over him. And the Lord descended, and he proclaimed the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly, we're told, bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. He just was brought down by this. And he wasn't even seeing it completely or fully. He was in the cleft of the rock and the Lord's hand was over him. And as awesome as this is, this moment in the life of Moses, it's not as great as what awaits you if you belong to the Lord. You will continue to see Christ. Continue to see him forever as he is. Adorned in the glory that the Father has given him because he loved him before the foundation of the world. They'll be displayed before you. Not turned from you so that you can't actually look on it. But displayed for you to look at, to behold, to examine, to bless you. You will not, nor will you need to be, sheltered in the cleft of a rock. He will not cover you with his hand, but rather he'll lay his hand upon you in love. It won't be a vision like John's, but it will be like Job hoped. You will see him with your very own eyes. You may recall that John says in in Revelation chapter 1, verse 10, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus and to Smyrna and to Pergamum and to Thyatira and to Sardis and to Philadelphia and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me, And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, 
clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. And as you go on and read about this description, you realize that John's seeing a vision. And that vision is of the risen and glorified Christ. And we come to the end of when John finishes his description of Jesus. And he says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. He couldn't bear the sight. The promise of Christ to you is not that you will see a glorious vision of him, but rather his glorious self. Recall what Job said when his flesh was failing. In Job 19, verse 23, he said, Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in the book. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead they were engraved in, a, in the rock forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. Just thinking about that, that I will see God, made him faint in his heart. Today, beloved, we walk by faith and not by sight. But Peter says, this is a verse we quoted this morning in 1 Peter 1.8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. But beloved, you're on a trajectory by the grace of God that is going to fill you with joy and praise and wonder. You'll be seeing him just as he is. We love him now, even though we aren't seeing him. But then we are going to see him. We're going to see him as he is, adorned in the glory bestowed on him by the Father. In our present state, our eyes couldn't bear the sight of him in glory. You couldn't do it. It is a physical thing as well as a spiritual thing. It's hard to tell what would fail first. The heart, just the, the beating physical heart in us at the, at the sight of Jesus in his glory, or the eyes. The mind or the soul. But when you're resurrected, And when you are translated with that blessed change that the Lord promises that will come, will come also the capacity not only to see him as he is, but to revel in the sight. Not just to see it, but to enjoy it and to praise God for it. To drink it in and and to drink it in with joy and with satisfaction, not with dread and fear and uncertainty, but with all joy and hope and gladness because you will be like him, as David says. Such knowledge, David said, in thinking about this is too wonderful for me. It's high. I can't attain to it. Whatever time Adam had with the Lord prior to his fall into sin was surely sweet and it was blessed but Christ is given to you and me by his sacrifice on the cross 
even sweeter and more blessed prospects in communion with him. Revelation 21, verses 1 through 7, John writes this, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are testimony and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son, my child. Now, if you're struggling to love Jesus like you know that you should, This is one of those truths that you can meditate on. And if you are the Lord's, it can't help but buoy or float your affection higher. Why am I going to get to see the blessings of heaven? Why am I going to be able to look on Jesus in his glory? Because of his desire for me. Because his desire, of his desire that I should be with him where he is and be able to do just that. Without the Father's love of the Son, we wouldn't know the love of God. We would be shut out from it forever. Without the Father's love for the Son, we wouldn't have any prospects of beholding his glory. Without the Father's love to the Son, we'd have no hope of ever being made like him. Now, there are many occasions when Romans 8.28 uh, may be appropriately applied. But there's a danger that in using it in so many contexts, we forget the context in which it originally appeared. What was Paul talking about when he said that? What was he referring to? Well, we go back to Romans 8.28, familiar And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestinated to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestinated, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And see, all things are working together gather for good towards this end. That's what he's referring to. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. For that is made possible that when Christ appears, you may appear like him. Be glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Now, just one more thing and then a concluding observation. We go back to John, 1 John 3. What did verse 1 say? 
See what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called the children of God. And so we are. Here we are, the children of God. What are our expectations? That we will see Christ in his glory because of Christ's desire that that should be so for us. And notice how Jesus begins afresh this part of his prayer back now in John 17, 24. How did he begin the prayer? He lifted his eyes towards heaven and he said, Father. How does he begin this part of his prayer? Father, I desire that they also. A.W. Pink says, Here is Jesus making application for your inheritance from the Father. This is your inheritance, that you would see Jesus in his glory. And Jesus is at this moment in his prayer making application for you to receive that promise. Father, my desire is that they should be here and receive the fullness of this promise. And now he's going to go to the cross and pay the penalty for your sin so that you may receive that inheritance. And as Jesus is going there, he says, Father, what I'm about to do seals the application for this inheritance that belongs to those who are my children, who are your children through me, I should say. And it's a beautiful thing. In Colossians 1, 11 through 12, Paul says, May you be strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. If you're wondering and saying to yourself, this is nice, but uh, what impact will it be right now? Here's the answer. It is truths and expectations like this, beloved, that give to you and me the grace and strength to endure what is now with grace and patience. We pray that we'll have that grace and patience which belongs to those who have this hope. And that's what we're looking to be fulfilled in us, the ability to endure because we have these hopes. We can go out into the world now, and it's not a happy and bright place in many respects. But it is for every one of us who is called, because our prospect is that we will see him as he is. And when we do, we will be like him. And we will pass into an endless glory of joy and blessing in Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this great promise, this love of our Savior. Lord, we don't know how to respond to it. We pray, Lord, that you would show us how to love you as we ought. We have your command, those that love you, obey you. Lord, we pray that you would show us how. Lord, strengthen us to do it. Lord, grant us the grace to be lost in love and praise and wonder, knowing that we are those who, by grace, have this hope. If there's anyone here or anyone listening who does not have that hope, oh, Lord, I pray that you would raise in their hearts a jealousy right now, not a jealousy that leads to anger and hatred, but a a jealousy that, that leads to desire to find this, which believers have found, to have a part in this hope, And they turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and find him and see him in his glory now.
that they might know his glory then. Thank you, Father, for this great prospect. Bless it to our hearts for Christ's sake. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.